This is an ABC podcast. After the 2022 federal election, there were plenty of independent members of parliament to be sworn in. There was Bob Catter and Helen Haynes from regional Queensland, Victoria, Rebecca Sharkey in South Australia. There were the Teals from WA, New South Wales and Victoria. And there was Di Lee from the seat of Fowler, based around Cabramatta in Western Sydney. Di Lee had gotten herself elected as an independent in what was once a safe Labor seat. Her victory was attributed to the ALP's decision to parachute Christina Keneally, an outsider, into Fowler. But Di Lee had served for years on the local council, advocating for things like car parks and decent public toilets. When the time came to deliver her first speech to the Parliament, Di Lee caught the nation's attention by wearing a Vietnamese Ao Dai imprinted with the Australian flag and by the exuberant group of family and friends and supporters, 250 of them, in the visitors' gallery, cheering her on. And in that first speech, Di Lee spoke of the harrowing voyage that she and her mother and her sisters went through to escape Vietnam in the 1970s, sailing through storms in the South China Sea. And she was just a little girl at the time. And this is the story you'll hear today of how Di Lee and her family came to Australia and made a new life here. Hello, Di. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me here. There were 250 supporters, like I said, who came to Canberra for your first speech. That's a lot. What were the logistics of getting those people from the electorate to Canberra on that day? Oh, my gosh. It was a nightmare in a sense that uh, obviously a lot of my team, it's the first time for them to obviously be in a member of parliament's office. And then there were so many people from the community calling, wanting to know when my first speech was and registered their interests. Uh, and so I had to organise first just two buses, I thought. That'll be about 100 people. And then suddenly, like the last few days, people were calling and we couldn't say no. And so I had to ring around and organise a few more buses. So I think in total we had about five buses, which about <laughs> 250 people. And we also organised packed little goodies for them because a lot of these, um, the community members have not been to Canberra before, nor have they been to Parliament House. So... We wanted to make sure that their journey into the people's house was going to be a very good experience. So my team got there early and organised that. So I left it in their hands. And then I think at one stage when I knew that it was nearly my uh, speaking time, I had to come out to find out what's going on. And they said they were sending me photos of the queues. <laughs> I don't think the security or parliamentary staff have ever seen anything like that before. And they have told me there has never been such a huge crowd coming to a first uh, speech. And I, I was so shocked. First of all, I'm thinking, oh my God, have I disrupted the parliamentary processes here to bring so many people in because they have to go through security and everything. I, first of all, very humbled that so many people turned up, but then was aware of, you know, you know what Parliament's like. Yeah, I do, actually. And I saw how you, you and your supporters transformed it. It's not a good place, Parliament House. It's surrounded by two ring roads. It feels unapproachable. The environment could not be different from your electorate. You know, Cabra is pretty gregarious sort of place. You know, it's lively, the street life, it's very social. You, you brought know, that to Parliament, the step was Parliament yeah, House. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's a pretty stitched up place, Parliament House, and it, it feels a bit like a fortress. And I just I think it's nice for people to feel like they were welcome in the people's house. I, I hope they felt welcome on that day. Yeah, look, I think they were oblivious to the whole pompous ceremonial and all that. They would just say they for die for mm -hmm. me and they want to see. They were so proud that somebody from the community and specifically for many of the Vietnamese Australians who were ref refugees arrived around the same time, it was the first time to have a Vietnamese a heritage of refugee in Parliament. So they were mm. so loud. They were walking mm. around. I'm thinking, oh, my God. I said, I said please, please. I, I was kind of petrified that I was going to be tagged as, you have caused trouble, trouble maker. Like, yeah, in right. Parliament House. Right, right. And I think the Speaker actually scolded them for their, for their enthusiastic support. But, you know, parliamentary democracy survived that. But how was it for you standing there? being called upon to tell something of your life story, to talk about what's important to you in your first speech, to see that crowd there for you? Uh, look, honestly, Richard, it's very hard to describe in words the overwhelming uh, humbleness that I felt to be standing there, to be elected by the people of Fowler, 
and I've made a point about it in my first speech, was that I wasn't there because of a party machinery. I wasn't there because a particular group or interest group had funded and brought me there. I was there because of the community, the people of Fowler. And, you know, we escaped Vietnam, came here with not a word of English, came here with nothing, going through that refugee journey and, you know, living in refugee camps, never in my wildest dream ever to be standing in this, one of the most highest institutions in the country to represent, to be the voice of a community that I grew up in, a community that I'm part of. But I knew that I, there was a purpose for me being there and that for me to be their voice, for the voice of families like mine who came here and who worked really hard to integrate into this Australian society. And all we wanted to do was to actually give back. And I felt that maybe this is my time to give back and and to give back to the community and hopefully contributing broadly to the Australian conversation around what does it mean to be an Australian? How can we build Australia to be a better, better country? Well, there was no doubt on the day of which country you were representing because you're... (laughs) your traditional Vietnamese dress was plastered with the Australian flag. Was that purpose made for the occasion or did you yeah. have it in your closet anyway? No, no. So I, I actually, everybody said, oh, whose idea was that? I said, well, it was mine because I felt very proud of my heritage but equally proud of the fact that I'm an Australian because Australia gave me and my family a start in life and I wanted to say thank you. I wanted to say thank you So despite some of the challenges that I have faced and despite some of the issues that Australia has faced over the decades in terms of settlement of refugees, in terms of attacks on on refugees, whichever waves of refugees that have arrived in Australia, I know that overall the Australian spirit of generosity, of embracing refugees like myself, was very big and generous. And so I wanted to symbolise that not knowing it was going to cause so much attention, the fact that I was wearing an Australian flag, because I'm you know, thinking just another first speech, because, you know, who am I really? Just just a member of one electorate out of 151. You're always going to get attention in that outfit, no matter what happened. I mean, that's yeah, pretty not wild. Yeah, not, but not to that extent, yeah. cause, because there were so many interpretations around why I shouldn't wear it or I should, and all of these people claiming uh, messages around it, other than the two messages I want was that I'm a proud Australian of Vietnamese heritage, and I want to thank this Australian community for giving me the opportunity, and I'm proud that as a Vietnamese, a daughter of a Vietnamese refugee, I'm here to represent all those who've actually crossed the seas to come here to find a haven, to find home to find a peaceful world to live in and raise a family. And that's what that's really the core of what my outfit was supposed to mean. You touched on your life story in your first speech. You were born in 1968, just as American commitment to the Vietnam War was starting to be wound down. Your earliest memories would be of Saigon in the early 1970s. Yes. What do you remember of, of that early life of yours in Saigon before you and your mum and your sisters were forced to drop everything and leave? Look... It's very scattered memories, uh, but I do remember going to school. Um, I do remember running to my grandmother's backyard with my my second sister and picking fruits and uh, vegetables in the garden. I remember a lot of military looking like people coming to our house and remembering their nights when it sounded like there were helicopters or there were bombs somewhere or gunshots somewhere and we would have to run to hide underneath our table in, the, our, in our home. Did you feel the stress of that? Or was that just like normal for you uh, as a little kid? Because you don't know any different? Exactly. We didn't know any different. So therefore it was like, okay, it's part of you know your life. If you're, you're going out there, you're playing in the street or you're going to school, if something happens, you need to just duck for cover. But those nights when we had to go and hide underneath the table, we weren't told what for, but I just remember we just had to run and hide underneath the table when we hear some sort of noise outside. You know, because you didn't know what that was all about, I didn't even know there was a war going on. So had no clue what was going on other than to listen to your parents. My father wasn't around because... I later found out that he was somewhere with the Americans and therefore at home, which is my mum, my grandparents sometimes, 
And we were, I think, middle class, so we have to have a maid in the house to help us. So you were part, your family was part of that educated Catholic minority. That's right. And as you say, your father was working for the Americans. That meant as the North Vietnamese were coming closer and closer, it would have been a time of real dread for your family. Yeah, you well, you in great danger. I remember at the time when there was some sort of panic in the household, I heard my mother and my grandmother talking about, look, you know, you're going to be killed, you're going to be killed. As a seven-year-old, you think, yeah, I'll kill, or six-year-old, whatever you think, why, why would we be killed? And it's your links to your link to the Americans and, and your support for the Americans, and that's why we had to run, because of the fact that they would kill us if they were to get their hands on us. Or send your parents to re-education camps. And, my, like. my, and a lot of our relatives were sent to re-education camps. So a lot of our family members were sent to re-education camps because of our link to the Americans. So um, that's what I discovered later. What do you remember of the day when your mum and your sisters and you had to just drop everything and, and get out? So I remember vividly, I was in my little tricycle in the front yard and there were some military people coming in and suddenly there was noise and people running. My my mum was running and there were people in the house who were running and then they just ran out and they dragged me and obviously my sis, my sisters were probably inside, dragged us all out. Suddenly next thing I, was, I knew I was in a little, in the back of a, a, a jeep, a kind of a four-wheel drive thing and we got shoved in there with other families in there. I looked around thinking, who, who are these people? Mainly women and kids, young kids, about three or four or five and then that just took us out from where we were, where we were living, because where we were living was an enclosed area in Saigon back in those days. So a compound. It's like a compound, yeah. yeah. In areas where there were families who worked with Americans or, or Westerners, it's a gated kind of community. So we left, and as our Jeep kind of went out, suddenly when I look at around the streets, I saw people running. People were running and people were crying and people in, the, in our thing, were, my mum was crying and everyone was crying and I'm thinking, why are they crying? Had no idea why people were crying. Had no idea what was going on other than seeing people running. So this would have been 1975 when the, uh, yes. the communists are on the, That's actually right. in the outskirts of Saigon? That's right. That's right. Exactly. So you saw people running through the streets. Where was the Jeep headed? I've got no idea where it was headed, but by the time we stopped, there was a boat, a, a big, a big boat. Maybe it's a military boat or whatever there. And I remember people were running towards it. And I remember uh, people were scrambling to get on board this boat and some stranger pulled me up. My mother was trying to push us up. And who was with you that day? My mum, myself, my two younger sisters and one of our maids. My mother probably had one small bag of something. I don't know what she took. We couldn't take anything. We didn't take anything, nothing at all. And where was your father at this point? We don't know. And have you seen your father since that day? No, I haven't. Uh, in my 20s or something, I did go to the Red Cross, International Red Cross, to search for him, but we couldn't. We couldn't locate him. What do you think happened to him after you left that day? You, my father wasn't around. I mean, he came um, once or twice when he were ch- children. My my mother just said he, he had to go and... And, and fight the communists. A lot of families were like mine who had their fathers, uncles, brothers missing in action. And I think the chaos and the shock of having to leave everything behind and being running as a child like I did, I think the only thing I remember when I got onto that boat, when I looked back, was that I lost everything. And I think as a seven-year-old, when I said I've lost everything, that means I've lost everything. So I, I think I came to terms with that I was on my own. I was all alone on my own. Because uh, I, I remember when I looked out into the distance and see what was going on, I just saw people crying. Because those who couldn't jump onto our boat and the boat was leaving, I felt I felt that my grandmother and my aunties were in there somewhere and they weren't with us. None of our relatives were able to join us. So it was just your mum and your sister? Just, yeah, 
So your dad had never been around much anyway. That's right. And so we'll never know what became of him. He might have made a new life for himself or been killed or... Exactly. That's right. right. Um, so, well, you know, we, we did look and I'm thinking, oh, did he look for us? If he survived, if he was alive. But I think I've learned to survive. I've learned to survive without a father and to some extent... My mother was there, but she was not there. I think she, looking back, it's all of the trauma of obviously leaving everything behind. And really, she I don't think she knew anybody because <laughs> we were running with thousands. I felt like thousands of, of strangers on the streets in Saigon, and here we were on this boat. So that moment when you climb on the boat, as you say, that's a real transformative moment for you then. Yeah. When you realised your life wasn't what you thought it was and now it was going to be, everything was going to be different? I was on my own. I think it was a strange feeling for... And, and I, I keep on going back to that moment when I was on that boat and it felt like I was standing there on that boat on my own, even though there were people, even though my mum was there. But I think I must have cut myself emotionally from everything and then just must have gone into thinking, how am I going to survive now? Because who's going to look after me? My mother probably couldn't care for us because I think she was struggling herself. Everybody was struggling to try and make sense of what happened because I don't think anyone expected to leave Vietnam. No one, no one thought they would have to escape. What was the scene like on the boat once you climbed on? Oh, it was so crowded. I remember walking around and looking for familiar faces, but of course there weren't any. I don't know how long that trip was. I don't think it was that long from memory because time became just timeless because you couldn't, you didn't know what time of the day it was and what day of the week it was. And all I knew is that the trip took us to later on was happened to be the Philippines because we've never left Vietnam, so it just took us to another country. We had no idea what language they were speaking. They looked Asian, but they weren't Vietnamese. But we were in camps with the other Vietnamese, so at least we, we maintain, you know, and of course you didn't hear people saying, oh, we're, we're in the Philippines. Um, so you made the sea journey from Vietnam to the Philippines. Philippines yeah. And that's not a short sea journey. I mean, I've looked at the map on that. Is that's, it? I no, don't no, know. It's, a, it's a fair way. Maybe, you were, maybe you, were, you were catching the right currents or something. But, but you, so you, you, do you have memory like stepping onto the beach or to a, a dock or something coming ashore and any of that? Oh, I remember stepping off and there were lots of people getting out. And then we were taken to this building. You and your sister's Huddled around your mum yes, at this point? Yes, yes. Uh, we're all huddled around my mum. And, of course, there are others, all other kids huddling around their parents. And we were there. Oh, you know, They moved us around a bit from one area to the next, to the next. Uh, I can't remember anymore. But we finally ended up in a place called Pandakan, which I later found out that that was where you're supposed to be until you get processed and then get resettled to America because a lot of, the refugees wanted to go to America. So what changed for you, given that, like the other refugees in that camp in the Philippines, would normally have just gone from there to Los Angeles or Seattle or somewhere like that or, California, or San Francisco or New York or wherever or Texas? What was different for you and your, your mum and sisters? My mother. My mother one day, she came home. She said, oh, we're going to go on a picnic. So I was okay, we're going on a picnic. But a picnic with a little one of her suitcase, like she had a suitcase. So she said, there's food in here, we're going to go on a picnic. And the, the people in that area said, oh, they look sad or something. They said goodbye to my mum. And, and I thought to myself, we're going on a picnic. Why are people so sad? And that day we went to a beach, sat on a table, had food out and everything. And then there were other people around, Vietnamese people also having picnic. They was at the beach, I remember. And we were there for, in the morning till nighttime. And I'm thinking, this is a very long picnic. I just want to go back, like at least where we were, we had a, a bed. And then everybody had left from the beach except a bunch of us, Vietnamese. And then next thing I know, we were tapping the shoulders and we were told to walk down this way by this guy. 
and so my mother said, Shh, just, just follow. So, of course, the three of us just followed and we walked into the waters, but behind this water, there was this big rock. There was a boat, a small boat, a fishing boat. I thought, why am I getting to a fishing boat? I was, I think it was about 10 at the time. And I was so cold because I had to just walk into the water. And then they, they pulled me onto the boat. And I remember I was, my teeth was chattering so cold from freezing. They said, shh, don't make a noise. Don't make a noise. So I'm just trying to, not to, to, to clutter my teeth. And, and then other people started to get onto the boat. And I was so exhausted from the cold. The next morning I woke up, the boat was in the middle of the ocean with 30 or something, 35 other people. I'm thinking, where are we going? No idea where we were going. No idea what was happening. Of course, it was my mother's and this group of Vietnamese refugees who, who waited in the Philippines to be processed, but because it's taken them so long to be processed, decided to get on to another boat trip this time. To go where? I don't know what idea where they were, what they were thinking, where they were taking us. I have no idea what their plan was, Richard. And the guy who was navigating the boat was not a navigator. He was an electrician. And the people saying, you don't know how to navigate the boat. And there were fights on the boat because God knows where they were taking us. Got no idea. So you're in the middle of the South China Sea. Again. On an overcrowded, but this time a little fishing boat. That's right. Exactly. And so because the boat was so much smaller, we felt everything more. So we encountered a huge storm. That storm, I thought we were going to die because it was a small boat. It rocked so badly. And I remember that the boat was kept on hitting. And I thought, this boat is going to turn. And my mother, we all had a plastic canister that we had to hold on to. And we were under a tarp. It was raining so hard. And my mother said to me, look, and she was holding the rosary beads, praying at the same time. She said, hold on to this. If this boat tip over, if you fall out in the ocean, make sure you hold on to this and onto your sister and we'll find each other. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to find you. It was so dark out there. There's no way I was going to find you. I said, none of us could swim. We couldn't swim and there's no way we'd survive that. And of course I prayed as well and I prayed so hard because I thought, dear God, I don't know where my mother has taken us, what we're doing here, where we're going, where we're heading. I have no idea. It was so rocking so bad that all I can feel was the water splashing on my face. I can see the water. I can see the ocean. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall in a minute. And the next morning when we woke up, it was so, this ocean was so funny. One moment it was raging. The next morning it was dead, quiet, nothing. It was so calm. So there was no destination plan. You were just going to sail and see where you were going to end up? Oh, they think. That's, that's what, what they, they thought. That's what they thought. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. And, and so where did, where did you end up? So we, uh, a Hong Kong patrol boat pulled us. They found us. And they pulled us into Hong Kong. So we got to Hong Kong. We spent another year in the refugee camps in Hong Kong. This time, I think by 70, I think the start of 79, a lot of Vietnamese had left Vietnam, the first wave and the second wave. The second wave saw a lot of uh, Vietnamese, especially of Chinese heritage, also escaping in 79. So when we got to Hong Kong, there were lots of refugees and, um, yeah, so they, they put us in refugee camps. So the Hong Kongers were quite hostile to the refugees, um, weren't they? By yeah, large. so it was interesting because, I mean, I went back to do this story later, years later as a journalist, to go visit Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is a small island, as you know, and it was part of the Commonwealth back in those days. And they were called upon by the UNHCR to take on a lot of the Vietnamese um, refugees. 
And they were also poor, my understanding, years on, but they were forced to take on a lot of the Vietnamese refugees and set set up the camps to deal with the Vietnamese refugees. And was that on Hong Kong Island or in the New Territories, somewhere like Um, that? It was in Kowloon. Kowloon, right. Yeah. Right, Kowloon. It's one of the most populated places in the whole planet. Exactly. So it was in Kowloon. Initially, you're not allowed to go out, but you get to a... One camp whereby there is a curfew whereby you can go out, but you had to come back by, I think, 9 p.m. If you need to go to work, and, and which I did, a lot of young kids in the camps were able to create fake ages. I was 10, but I became 16, and I was able to go to a factory to work in a factory. And then the last part of that journey was to be in a re- what they call a freedom camp. So when you're ready to go, they sent you to a freedom camp. It was a very camp experience whereby, you know, people will line up and you go and get food from a, a barrel of rice and a barrel of whatever. So four years of my life was just tumultuous, to say the least. No proper education, no proper roof over our heads, nothing. It was like, it, it was in limbo land. Podcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So how long were you and your mum and your sisters in Hong Kong for? Uh, probably just about five months or just under, definitely under a year. We were accepted for resettlement in December 1979. And you're told, congratulations, you're going to Australia. And I, I think with the case of a lot of Vietnamese refugees, they went, great, what's Australia? Yeah, yeah. Was that what it was like well, for you? <laughs> no, no. So the funny thing with, my, with our case was that everybody knew about the United States no one knew about Australia. It's called Uk Dai Loi. That's the Vietnamese pronunciation. No one knew where this, this country was. My mother applied to go to the States. But in the last few weeks or months or something while we were there, I remember one day I was coming back from work. She said, look, we were supposed to be resettled in the United States, but I have been told there's a better place. It's a very big island. And it has the best education system in the world and with not many people. I mean, I think I think she needed to say that to somebody and she told her 10-year-old daughter who had no idea what she was talking about. And well, one, or two, one, one out of two isn't bad, I think. I don't know if we've got the best education system in the world. but uh, Well, but, back then yeah, it was known it, it has known the best. Right. It was very good back mm. then, right? So she said, I have put our names down to go to this island. It's not even a country, it's an island. Right. And I thought, oh, my God, an island. Is You're thinking like a Hong Kong's yeah, island? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Right. Well, Hong Kong is kind yeah. of like you have more people, but an yeah. island, you've got yeah. no people. <laughs> and, and she said there's not many people. She says, I don't know when we'll be resettled, but because I took that chance, we could wait a bit longer. And I thought, okay, that's fine. And it, within a few months of her making that application, because at the time, my understanding, looking back in history, was that under Malcolm Fraser, he started to open doors for Vietnamese refugees to be resettled. He had the view that because Australia had participated in the Vietnam War, we had a responsibility to take in people fleeing from the regime, the communist regime. So. And, and it, so it happened very quickly. So we couldn't believe how quickly our, our application to be resettled got processed. And I was so excited that we'll soon be set resettled on this big island and I will be able to go to school and that means I'll have a bed, we'll have a house. And in my 10-year-old sort of head, I was just so looking forward to that. So the day came when it was time to leave Hong Kong and come to Australia. Did that mean getting on board a plane? Yes. I, I can't remember how we got into the plane, but I do remember sitting on a plane. I do remember looking at the plane and thinking, oh, my God, this is amazing. This thing can fly. Was this a Qantas flight or something like that? Was it Cathay Pacific. Cathay Pacific. So you're sitting in, what, an economy class seat? I sat next to the window, I remember. Right. And you've got a tray table that comes down and someone yes, gives you a Yes, yes. And people coming, giving us right. food right. And, and a little tray. Right. And... Plastic knife and fork. And yeah. what, what was that like? It was wild because mm. it was all looking so nice and clean. I mean, mm. we li- a refugee camp, you can keep as clean as much as you want, but it's 
a camp life, right? In Hong Kong camps, it's not dirt, but there's some areas like you're sharing with cooking utensils and toilets and bathrooms. You're sharing with thousands of others. So this was the first pristine environment you'd been in. That's the word pristine. Since since leaving Saigon, in other words. That's right. Very pristine and somebody giving you a tray of Mm. food. You know, everything was white and clean and just so quiet and not with thousands of people. And what was it like to arrive at Sydney Airport? There was hardly anybody at the airport. And I'm thinking, this is an island. There's nobody here. <laughs> there was no one here. And I, I remember only seeing one yeah. or two people at customs, all looking the same, all very fair skin and all looking very golden. Yeah. The golden hair and I I've never seen so many people with golden hair. I don't know that I don't know if they actually had golden hair, all of them, but that's how I saw that through my mm. child's eyes. We walked out the airport and there was this mini bus there waiting for us, a white bus. And it's so funny. I can't remember how many families, probably 10 families or something like that. And they drove us down to Ferry Meadow Hostel. Where is Fairy Meadow Hostel? Yeah, I thought it was full of fairies. Oh, it sounds nice. Fairy Meadow Hostel. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I, look, I'm just a wild guess here, Di, but it sounds like it's going to be sound a lot prettier than the reality of it, perhaps, I suppose. <laughs> it's a hostel in mm, Wollongong. Right. So we got on the bus and it started to take us down. And so the people started to talk. They said, where are the Vietnamese? Oh, where are they taking us? Where are they taking us? And we were all kind of shocked, shy, still absorbing this new environment that we've just landed in. Got no idea where they're taking us, what's happening. And as we were going down the Wollongong Bypass, one of the couple of them said, oh, I think they're taking us to the re-education camp. Oh, no. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, dear. So the shiver of terror runs through the bus then, doesn't it? Oh, my God, this looks like they're taking to a re-education camp. It's called, uh, in Vietnamese, Kinh Tây Mới, New Economic Zone. It looks where they're taking it. Looks like it's going to be like a new economic zone, and then of course the person, <laughs> no, no, no. We are in Sydney, Australia. There's no such thing as the economic <laughs> re-education camp. It's is Mo means new economic zone, but that means it's re-education camp. Uh. Anyway, so by the time we got there, we walk into a mess. This dome thing, white dome, with a bunch of women and men, all kind of older Australians. Smiling, with I, I looked around and there were all these bags against the wall. They're bags of goods, of books, of clothes, and I later found out they were the Saint Vincent's de Paul Lady Society. And then they parted to show to show us a table full of food, and there were mainly sandwiches, ham and cheese sandwiches. There were I think one with Vegemite because there was a black thing in the middle. And then the one that's colourful, I think there were hundreds and thousands. And, oh, sweet. and then there were plates of pineapples, canned pineapples. Mm. And so only familiar thing to me, uh, from my memory, I remember was the canned pineapples because it looked like our pineapples. So I went, we went for the pineapples, right? So Uncle Don and Auntie Claudia Smith, who were part of the St. Vincent Ladies the Paul Society, were there. To this day, whenever we go and visit them in Bulai, they keep reminding, I remember you girls just went for the canned pineapples. You just <laughs> ate the pineapples. Got stuck <laughs> into the golden circle, <laughs> straight out of the tin. How lovely. Uh, right. Over the years, we, they used to open a canned pineapples for us when we, whenever we visited them. I mean, now they don't anymore, but like in the early years when we, when we used to come back and visit them, they always opened the canned pineapples for us. They sound like very kind people. Well, and you're still in touch with them. You we still are. See them. So I... They came to my first speech. I mean, Uncle Don had a stroke, so he couldn't be there. He was in the nursing home, whereas Auntie Claudia and one of her daughters came, Kylie. Kylie used to sew clothes for us, and so she was there with her husband, Neil, and Auntie Claudia was there. So we owe it to people like Auntie Claudia who helped us really settle in, took us to learn English classes in addition to our ESL classes at school, Drove my mum around to look for a job for her. You know, she ended up cleaning houses, working in the, as a kitchen hand in, in restaurants in Wollongong. My mother, her English is now okay. None of us married a Vietnamese, so therefore she had to learn to speak English because we're all married. We all had international, like my, my husband is of German heritage. My other sister married somebody, Aussie, Aussie, oi, oi, oi. And her third sister married somebody who's of Egyptian heritage, and the fourth sister is actually engaged to an Australian born of Chinese Laotian heritage. So we're a very mixed bunch in our family. So time goes by, 
you and your sisters go to school. Were they hard days, given that uh, you were part of the first wave of Vietnamese migrants to Australia? There was a lot of residual anti-Asian racism going back to, oh, God knows when. What do you remember of those years going through school, Di? Um, So once we got to the hostel, I was so excited. We were still living with other people, but at least we had a one-bedroom unit. I was so grateful that we actually had a clean place, that I wasn't sharing the next space with hundreds of other people in the bathroom, in the toilet we had for ourselves. So that was something that I was, and I think I felt so grateful. And I thought, you know what? The first thing that I need to do was learn English. I had to learn English so that I can talk to people, so that I can do well at school. So I arrived here at 11 years of age. So I went into um, St. John Vianney's Catholic Primary and I was put into year five and I was the oldest in the class. You know, it was so scary because I couldn't speak the language. I could say hello because in the camps I learned some of the language, English language. Did anyone in the classroom look like you? No, 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 no. I was the only Asian kid in my year five. And so all the kids looked at me with fascination. I don't think they've ever seen an Asian face before. But they were all so amazing. So Susan and Jodie, Jodie's of Scottish heritage and Susan's her parents were from Italy. One was quiet, the other was more outgoing. They made friends with me and kind of helped me um, settle into the class. But I think that my thinking when I first, when once we got to the hostel was that I'm going to make the most now. I've got to make sure that I learn the language, make sure that I adapt to this country, prepared me for any, I didn't see any, I just was prepared to just learn and just go for it, to learn as quickly as I could. It'd been a long while since you'd been safe. Did you feel safe in Australia? That's it. I felt, once I got here, that's what I'm saying, I was so grateful because I suddenly, I, I, I felt that we weren't running, we didn't have to run anymore. I felt that we were protected because we weren't surrounded by the wars in Vietnam and it was an island and nobody can reach us. My mother said that because it's an island, no one will be able to come and reach us and we'll be protected from the wars that, ha- that was happening in Vietnam. And so I think that was partly why we felt so safe because we were on an island. No one can reach us. What was expected of you? My mother, obviously, being a single mum, having to obviously adapt to this new society now, expected me to learn Vietnamese, uh, to continue to practice. And there were some of the Vietnamese families, they gathered together to make sure that they enabled us to continue to to learn the language. I refused to go (laughs) because I said, what use would it be for me to learn Vietnamese because I'm in an English-speaking country. I need to learn English because I need to go to school and I need to learn English to integrate and to play with my friends. And so my mother just kind of gave, she was strict, but she just probably saw my argument that it's no point me learning Vietnamese and to to, to allow me time to learn English because otherwise I would not be able to study at school. So not only did you learn English, you made your career out of the written word and the spoken word of English. As a journalist, where did you start your career as a journalist, Di? I stumbled into journalism in in the early 90s, because by that stage we moved from Ferramatta to Bosley Park, which is the next suburb, which is in the Cabramatta area. And then I just, you know, got off you know, over a coffee with a journalist, local journalist there at the Liverpool Champion. He said, oh, we're looking for an ethnic cadet. You've got the personality. You ask questions and I think you'll be good to be a journalist. And I had no idea what a journalist because in my head, I was supposed to become a, a lawyer. I was supposed to study to be study well to get into law because that, that was expected of me. And so I said, okay, I applied for that role at the Liverpool Champion. And of course, back in those days, there weren't many Asian or ethnic person like myself who were interested in a different career other than being a doctor, a lawyer or pharmacist. I was... I thought that those weren't my careers. I weren't. I wasn't. That wasn't for me. I wasn't born for that. And so this um, journalist um, got me interviewed, and I got the job. That's how my journalism career started. With the Liverpool champion. How did you then move from there to getting a job with the AB Frickin' C? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, look. So after you know, I work at the Liverpool champion, 
and I wanted to be as good as I could be as as a journalist, and I wanted to grow and learn how to write better, how to get my storytelling skills to be the best. And I remember I used to watch ABC a little bit, not a lot, but watch ABC, learning, watching some of the the, the programs on the ABC and learning English. And then the journal, the Liverpool asked a couple of journalists, including myself too, me and these other senior journalists, to open the Fairfield Champion, which is, again, next door. So we opened the Fairfield Champion newspaper and it was amazing. So um, the community in Fairfield and Camaranda was growing with migrants and refugees. So they sent me there and I stayed there till I think 1994 when I thought, look, it's, it's time to move on. And I got a job as a researcher for the ABC TV in, in I think 1994, 95 and stayed there till 2008. And how did you get from the ABC into community politics? By accident. By accident again? Yeah. I was, you know, growing up in Cabramatta. And as a journalist covering stories out there, you understand a lot of the issues, a lot of the neglect, and understand the stories from lack of parking, from uh, our roads being neglect, from um, our rubbish, everything, schools, everything, all that stuff. And so um, in 2008, I was shopping in Cabramatta, and my husband said, and at the time, um, the then Minister for Health resigned, the State Minister for Health resigned, who's for Cabramatta. She was also from Coogee, representing Cabramatta. And the people said, oh, you know, we can hear people in the markets talking, and they don't normally talk politics, <laughs> especially of Southeast Asian. But they said, who do we vote for? We we want somebody who represents us here in, in Cabramatta. And I, my husband said, you know, you always talk about how your community gets neglected and don't get the funding and resources. Why yeah. don't you give it a go? I don't know. So that was September 2008. Within a few weeks, I was campaigning on the issue of, of car parking and toilets. And, <laughs> and that's because I knew about it through my work as a journalist. You were with the Liberal Party for, for a while and then left the Liberal Party or they suspended you. They suspended you ran, me. Because you ran as an independent, is yes, that why? Yes, that's right. Against their endorsed candidate. Yes, that's right. So was that your first bout with machine politics? It was, right. it was, it was. That's 2011 when I was pre-selected by the then opposition leader, Barry O'Farrell, to, to run as a state candidate for them for the 2011 election. Apparently I got people's knickers and the knots out there who were part of the Liberal Party for decades and suddenly who's this woman that they got pre-selected? Why was one, one of the local branch members got pre-selected? And so I did not know this, of course. I had no idea. I thought if you want to be a voice and represent and you're a good candidate and you're working for a party, in this case the Liberal Party, that you should get to, to represent. That's what, how I started and then it continued until when I decided to run in 2016, I said I wanted to run as the mayor candidate, and they said no. And the numbers, the numbers men, as they call it, decided to say if she does that, we'll expel her. And I said, well, go on. <laughs> so then, in 2022, you put your hand up to run as an independent candidate for the seat of Fowler. The previous Labor member had lined up Tuli to run as the pre-selected Labor candidate, but. Federal Labor Party decided to bring in Christina Keneally because she'd been moved to an unwinnable position on the Senate ticket on election night. Yes. Anthony Green called it pretty early for you. Uh, I didn't believe him. When he called it, I thought, could it be? Like, in my heart, I wanted to win. But there's another voice in my head that says, you know, you are running against a very high-profile woman. It's a high mountain to climb at a federal level. It's not possible. In my heart, I'm thinking, of course it's possible. Of course it's possible. But I'm thinking, oh, shit, is it possible or not? So you play to win, but you also have to be realistic. My honestly thinking was that we would bring this seat down to 1.5% margin for the Labour Party. And I remember at 10 o'clock when Anthony Green kept on saying, oh, look, I call it for the independent dialogue. <laughs> and and everyone goes, yay, yay. And we're thinking, in my head, I'm thinking, but there's still 20,000 postal votes to come. It can't possibly be because those is going to go towards Labor. But I had to celebrate because I'm thinking if my people there who help, I have to <laughs> celebrate with them. And there was no media there until I think Channel 7 came at about 10.30, quarter to 11 or something. I don't think anyone still, even though Anthony Green called it, I don't think anyone kind of really believed it. <laughs> so, yeah. 
and this brings us full circle now back to that first speech you made in Parliament. As part of that speech, you not only told a capsulated version of your life story and the journey from Vietnam to here, you also mentioned what had been going on in Western Sydney during the COVID lockdowns, how Western Sydney was treated during that period. Western Sydney was singled out, it seems, for exceptional treatment. Absolutely. I tell you, during that period, that really got the brunt of the harsh, unprecedented restrictions. And surveillance and, too. And mm. Oh, surveillance. Helicopters. Uh, it, oh, there were nights when I was lying there and helicopters were just hovering around our area and I can hear it. I said to my husband, I said, you know what? It takes me back to the time when I had to hide underneath the table and you, you feel the stress unconsciously. And then my husband would say to me, you're not in Vietnam. You know that, don't you? I said, yes, yes, I know, I know, I know, I know that. But it's still that the noise of that the helicopters really, it triggered me. There are a lot of people in that electorate who've escaped from police states. Absolutely. And, and so I thought to myself, imagine I'm a well-informed person. I can tell myself that we are in a safe country. But imagine those who can't speak English, who've just arrived recently, what would they be thinking? Every night I'll be picking up a phone call from a constituent who said, oh, my God, you know, what happened to my business? What happened to my... Like asking me, do I have to get tested now every two days? Where do I get tested? Like we were being asked to get tested every two days, especially those who had to go out to work. And you're thinking, but if people coming to our area, do they have to get tested every two days? No. Like suddenly I felt like we had this barricade around us and it felt like we were made to feel so different, like second-class citizens. And it was when the likes of Woolworths and Coles, they didn't have, you know, shelf stackers or people at serving communities or delivering food. Suddenly when that whole state came to a stop, that's when they realised, oh, hang on. Oh, they came from that area. <laughs> yes, the man, you know, the manufacturing uh, companies that are manufacturing the food, uh, vegetables and all that were in our area. It was an emergency of a kind and certain measures were required. But the burden of that fell much more heavily on Western Sydney than the more affluent areas. Why, we, why do you think that was, Diane? Richard, I could only, if I had the answer to that question, my gosh. And at the time, no one stood up for us at the state level, at a federal level, while the government of the day put out, you know, very harsh restrictive measures, which to some extent, if they were to do that across the state, I can understand, but to only pick a certain area first, in particular Fairfield, and then south, rest of Southwest. That, to me, was uncalled and, and not fair. Uh, however, the mayor spoke out a lot, and so did I, and I think quite a lot of conversations took place between his office and the Premier's office and me going onto media, talking to the various departments. But then our community was so great. They stepped up to it. Whatever was asked of us, we did it. Every two days testing, they did it. I think we were the first council areas that had the, one of the highest vaccination rate because we were supposed to get vaccinated and we did that. The five-kilometre radius, families who had autistic children were ringing me up saying, I can't even go to the park. And, you know, we've got large families in southwest Sydney and in particular in Fowler. Four, five family members, sometimes 10 people live in a three-bedroom household. And you couldn't go out five kilometres beyond your household and the park is beyond five kilometres. You know, people get stopped by police to say, you know, are you allowed to go out? Families who escape Pol Pot regime, for instance. Uh, I had one story of a young kid who is in his 20s. He had COVID and suddenly, because of all this news that there's going to be police knocking on your doors and that you're not allowed to go out, he thought he did something wrong because he had COVID. He felt so guilty. He felt he locked himself away. The community leader rang me up and said, what can I do to get him out? I said, I don't know what you can do. He goes, is there any way that we can intervene? Because the family are concerned. He's got COVID and he's too scared. He might, if he come out of the house, he, he'll give it to his parents. But he's, he suffers from depression as well. All of this. I was a simple person. I did not have all of the resources at hand to help these individuals. And I felt so helpless. I felt so helpless. Speaking more generally now, and I don't want to make too much of this analogy, but sometimes I think there's a division between people who have grown up and known Australia as this pleasant, comfortable, safe place, and those who've come here as refugees, who know what it's like to have to suddenly drop everything and go, go right away on that day. 
Do you feel like that sometimes, that, there's, that you and other refugees from places like Somalia and elsewhere in the world from very dangerous places know, know a thing about what the world can be like that the rest of us don't? Absolutely. To walk in, in our shoes, uh, people would have to experience that loss, that fear of losing everything to start from scratch. Uh, sometimes my husband, who migrated here from Germany, would say to me, I, you know, I migrated here with one suitcase like you. I said, you cannot compare your migration from Germany, a first world country. You chose to come here. And yes, you learn English here, but you weren't leaving in fear of your life and you had to drop everything and go and not knowing where you were going, not knowing where you were heading. I don't think people can ever know what it's like to lose someone you love, to nearly die at sea. And some people might have the cloak of strength. Like for me, some people have said to me, how come you have not been traumatized? I'm sure I have been traumatized, but in a different way. And that I am very independent as a result of my being traumatized in that I saw myself being alone and therefore I have conditioned myself that if anything happened, I know I'll be able to survive on my own. Do you see that now as something you have to get past? Oh, absolutely. It's something that I I have uh, acknowledged that is, while it's a strength, it's a big weakness because that means that I don't have people around me, you know, I don't ask for help if I need it. But now I've learned, I do ask for help. I do acknowledge that I'm not on my own anymore. But others experience the trauma differently, you know, either through depression, through drinking, through gambling. I do it through working. I, I become a workaholic. I just work and work and work and work. So, yeah. It's been fascinating speaking with you, Dai Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard, for having me. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here. If you like stories that get at the heart of human experience, then I'd love it if you checked out my podcast, Earshot, where we eavesdrop on life as it's lived. I think I just held my dad's hand and just hoped that I was going somewhere safe. We're kicking off a new season and it's all about promises. Made, broken, kept and stretched. I couldn't promise that she would have a great life because she could never promise it to any child. But I promised that she would have a life and that I would look after her and be there for that life. His funding's been stripped, like stripped. I wanted to be metaphorically the dying person in the room. I wanted the members of parliament who were going to oppose this law to say it to my face. Just search for Earshot on the ABC Listen app and I'll catch you there. Love is great, but sometimes that's not enough. Promise me?